Okay, hello. Um, I'm Lynette Moore, and lead producer of CAP, which is the Collaborative Arts Partnership Programme. That's a transnational programme involving nine partners across six EU countries, co-funded by the Creative Europe Programme of the European Union. And um, I am founder and festival director of Live Collision, which is both an annual festival and the first year-round independent creative producing organisation working with live artists in live contexts. I'm really happy to welcome Selena Thompson um, to speak with me today. Selena, um, you're participating in the CAP residency programme, which we'll talk a little bit about later. And on your website, you, Selena, in your own words, you describe yourself as an artist and performer based in Leeds, whose work is both playful, participatory and intimate, focused on the politics of identity and how this de defines our bodies, lives and environments. There's a really beautiful quote on your site also as well from a review by Harold Ofe from This Is Tomorrow that describes your work as work that isn't about answering questions, it's about igniting an internal discussion in each of us that allows for the possibility of self-awareness, analysis and reflection. Welcome, Selena. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a lot to be put through. Yeah. <laughs> Would you find that an accurate description of your work? It's a beautiful way for someone to describe what you do. Yeah, it is. Um, it'd be lovely if that was an accurate description of my work. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that. Okay. Because I guess I can never like properly experience my work. But that is what it's aiming to do. Um yeah, it's aiming to um, stimulate conversation about all of that stuff that is sort of bubbling underneath the everyday, um, specifically around identity. And that for me means loads of things. It means like all of the things you'd expect it to mean. So race and gender and sexuality and age and religion and um, mental health, physical health, um, where you live. For me, it takes in a lot. I think, in a way, saying your work is about identity politics is like as broad as saying your work's about people. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Okay. Your work is collaborative and so... I'm going to say that again because I think... Your work is collaborative and socially and politically engaged, as you said, and the outcomes of your work are most often presented in a live context in terms of you invite audiences to meet your work through live performances or events. What are the spaces between collaborative practice and live practice that excite you and where you feel there's potential for your work within those? What do you mean when you say what are the spaces? Well... When we look at, if you look at live practice um, as an outcome for the dialogues and articulation of your work, yeah. why is that the mode of practice in which you operate? Yeah. And how does that, those two things speak to each other? Um, so we spoke a little bit before yeah. the conversation. Um, and I said that probably when you ask me questions like that, I'll try... And use a work to think it through. Yeah. Because if it's not pinned to something, I get a bit lost. Um, so I have a piece called Race Cards, which you saw in Glasgow. Yep. Yeah, where was Glasgow? 
Um, and at that time, the way that piece worked was that I was in a room for 12 hours just writing loads and loads and loads of questions about race. And then my producer, long-suffering and very kind, <laughs> would take the pictures, not the pictures, take the questions I had written and stick them on the wall. And the contract for the audience that was written on the door was that you could enter the space on the condition that you answer the question. Um, and I, like... I don't do that work in that way anymore because it took a lot out of me. Mm-hmm. But I bloody loved that work. I was, like, really proud of it in a way that you really get to be because it did exactly what I wanted it to do. And what it enabled for me was two things. The first was that it allowed me to get a load of questions that I live with on a daily basis, which I think often people who are white and as such not othered on the base of their race don't have to deal with but that I as a black woman and dealing with constantly get those out of my body and put those into a space where people can see them and see them in an overwhelming way but it also allows me to completely control the terms of that conversation because it's not a back and forth so you can't answer a question dismiss it and leave you are left with all of that and it stops being my responsibility. And I guess that that work becomes like a series of provocations. Um, And it felt really... And for me, that's a work that's between a live performance, definitely between a live performance and a visual work, Mm -hmm. especially now, because my body's not in it anymore, which was terrifying for me. (laughs) Now it's like this installation of a thousand questions and people go in and they read them and you're left with like the residue of a 24-hour performance but it reads like such a stream of consciousness Mm -hmm. um and I love work like that um but it has like a Mm, what am I trying to say There's something about, so we spoke a little bit earlier about one of the things that I love about live performance is that you have the potential to talk about something that's full of risk and hold hold the risk in your body. My first work, Chewing the Fat, I made because there was a huge issue with eating disorders in my year at uni. And something about it, something about the way that girls are socialised, something about the university context, something about the fact that it was a very intense year of 30 quite highly strung women, um, just meant that we weren't able to have blunt conversations about eating disorder, about weight, about body image. And I wanted those conversations to happen. So I used my stories and my body to create a context that I hoped would like, like I've taken the risk, like I've been really honest and exposed and bare and it's there and it's abject. There was a lot about abjection in that work. So maybe, hopefully, if I've done that, it makes it easier for you to then have the conversation. That's what I'm always hoping for. Mm And in race cards as well, there's that. So, like, even though 
my body is out of it now. What started off as this like 12 hour endurance thing, which is a combination of like some super academic stuff, which is probably a bit annoying, but oh well, I read a lot. And um, other stuff, which is like, there are so many questions about sex in race cards, which I realised when I was typing it all back up, there were loads of questions about porn and, you know, when I was at uni and I was a bit more sexually adventurous and I can be bothered to be now, like having like interactions where afterwards, I can remember once like being in the shower and coming out and hearing this guy on the phone being like, yeah man, I just fucked that black girl. And I was like, oh. <laughs> it's like, it's such a weird headspace. I was like, is that a, and now I can kind of go, well, you were being fetishized, so no, it's not a compliment. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was like, is this a compliment? I don't think he's saying it like it's a bad thing, blah, 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 blah. So, again, it's like going into all of this stuff that is in my body, in my autobiography, in my memory, and all of this reading and learning and analysis that I have done, mm-hmm. and putting it all in like a great big space, like clearing it out of my body in the hope that it then creates like a launch pad for other people to have these conversations or to go away and think about it. You know, maybe if I'm really lucky to pause for thought the next time before they like try and touch somebody's afro <laughs> or to know that they're not alone if, they're, if these are things that are in their autobiography and they're not crazy. So, yeah, I think that risk that you take into your body when you make a live performance is a really like fertile like radical space that potentially can make stuff happen can change the way that people think mm-hmm. which I think is all art can ever do really right it's change the way people think and hopefully that changes other bigger things well I suppose like you're saying as well with like as an audience member of race card the thing that really struck me was exactly like you've explained in the sense that you you had embodied this um role or responsibility to begin the momentum of these questions but actually you were imparting the responsibility and ownership of those questions to everyone so in a way the communication of that through that live work in terms of as you say, it's it wasn't an easy piece to do. It's quite arduous, both on your body and your mentality, on all of the things that you need to be there, um. And in a way, it felt like you you put something into the world in which the rest of us had to take responsibility for. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about someone else's opinion or a question posed by someone else, but instead they were fundamental to society in which we are in Mm -hmm. and therefore we are complicit within and therefore we have a responsibility to find out how we arrive at an answer or how we even Mm honour or value these questions. Um, So for me as an audience member, that's what it felt like and I think it's really interesting to hear about you talk about that kind of willingness to embody the risk and the rigor and and the the arduous nature of some of the subject matter and the um areas that you're interested in in a very personal way mm. in as a as a mode or as a vehicle 
to allow us, um, in, in the most generous way an artist could, allow us, the audience, to, to begin having a conversation about the thing we find it hard to have a conversation about. It seems like an ultimately generous act on your part to do. Yeah, sometimes. There's also like loads of um, anger in a lot of it, though, as well. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, there's loads of... And it's interesting because there's so much anger in race cards, but I don't feel that anger anymore. That's another part of why I couldn't have my body in it, because I was kind of like, I don't have the the same kind of fire. that Because that, I think you do have to be pretty livid to sit down for 12 hours (laughs) (laughs) and write all those questions out you've got to be pretty angry um and i'm not i'm not angry in that same way maybe because i've done soul which is a project where i um retrace the transatlantic slave triangle on a cargo ship so sailed from the uk to Ghana, then Jamaica, then back to the UK. And that was this really, like... If race cards is full of anger, then salt is full of pain. But in the same way that race cards, like, transformed the anger, I think salt transformed the pain. So as is always the way with art, there's definitely something I'm getting out of it that's cathartic. Mm -hmm. But I think that, hopefully, touch wood, because of the subject matter that I choose... It's not cathartic in a way that an audience or participants or witnesses leave a work feeling like they've kind of been wanked all over. Like, I hope that it's, like, something which is um, igniting more than that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's always a... um, I had a meeting with my producer, like, a couple of months ago... Or maybe yesterday, I don't know. Time's all washing into one. Uh, and we were talking about how do we R&D a socially engaged process. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like an awkward pause. We're two people that have a very, like, um, very close and have a very shared language. So it's very rare for us to not quite understand. And she was kind of like... So what's your socially engaged process? And I was like, yeah, that's a question we've got to start with, isn't it? And I was like, well, I guess it's like a process where the way in which you make the work is aiming to be transformative as well as the final piece aiming to be transformative. Um, And sometimes I feel like there are like that my practice broadly has, like, two halves. I'm just talking out loud a bit. Is this all right? Yeah, no, it's perfect. So there's, like, the half, which is the work, where often I'm aware of the fact that because my work is characterised as live art, that it can potentially go out to, like, your standard white, middle-class, you know, very art-literate audience. Um, And then there's the half of it which is making it, which is almost always involved... And deeply embedded with people whose identity aligns with mine. So uh, when I was making Chewing the Fat and I was like... (laughs) And this, again, I was really angry. But I was going to Weight Watchers meetings. And when I was little, in the Vicar of Dibley, 
Dawn French had that coat, and when she opened it, it had all the chocolates in it. Do you remember that? And I remember that issue from when I was little, and I was obsessed with it. So I'd, like, made this coat, and I'd go to Weight Watchers meetings, and I'd be wearing a T-shirt that said, can I talk to you about fat? I'd open the coat, and all those chocolate (laughs) bars would be there, and I'd do it in the middle of the meeting. Um, And it used to, like, there were people that got really angry, and there were people that really laughed about it. Mm -hmm. That's, like, a dick thing to do at Weight Watchers, but also I was really angry, (laughs) Um, so I spent like, so I kept going to these Weight Watchers meetings and interviewing sort of other fat, mainly women, often like working class mums and nans, like the main caregivers in their home, who were often like super stressed and super angry and eating was their coping mechanism. And then Making Dark and Lovely, which was all about black women, working class women, um, and then, you know, this next project, which is going to be working with black teenage girls. And we'll always do work to try and get that audience in at the work as well. Mm-hmm. But you know you're going to get this other strata of society that's in as well. So I'm always trying to think about what do I want to say to that audience? How do I, how do I want to challenge that audience mm-hmm. as well as the sort of, as well as challenging the audience that's similar to me as well, we also Mm -hmm. have to be challenged, but also, like, making sure that that audience feels seen in my work, Mm -hmm. because I don't always feel seen in the work I go to see, and sometimes that's a problem and sometimes it isn't. So it's kind of like a a collaborative strategy, in a way, because, um, you know, the groups of people that you've worked with would you say, for example, your collaborative processes are formal or informal ones or Super a mix? Informal. informal. They have to be. Mm-hmm. So, like when I f- so dark and lovely is my show about uh, black hair, Afro hair, um, and I was based in like hairdressers in an area of Leeds called Chapel Town for like six to nine months on and off. Um, it's like the the most stressful time of my life because <laughs> I was like working at Lush, like to pay my rent and doing bits and pieces of art but I was in that weird place where people would be like we'll give you £100 for two weeks work but you yeah. need to do it for exposure I'm doing the inverted commas thing which you can't turn <laughs> the recorder um, and then for my research for this project I was working in shops and barbershops but for free mm-hmm. so I could talk to people and when I first was doing it I would go in with like a dictaphone and you know pen and paper but people didn't talk to me because it made okay. them because you you become like this weird Louis Theroux character you become like a documentary filmmaker and I'm not really making documentary work because I'm too involved in what I'm making work about like I'm not someone from outside of a community going into it so like um Victoria Melody is a brilliant example of someone who does that work very well. But that's not what I'm doing. Like, So what I do instead is I go and I try and set up... Um, what's the word? Settings? It's not context? I context, know. yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, where like I'm going to be able to speak to someone for a long time. 
So I'm not just going to be able to speak to them for an hour or ask them a set amount of questions. I'm going to be with them all afternoon. I'm going to be with them all day. Uh, maybe we'll cook together. Maybe we'll go for a walk. Maybe there'll be something that they show me. Maybe I'll be in their home. Maybe I'll see them two or three times. Because I want the opportunity for our dialogue to go somewhere that I couldn't possibly plan for. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, that happens with time um, and allowing for spontaneity. And maybe this comes from the fact that I have two parents where, like, to get them to talk, like, the moon has to be in the exact right position. <laughs> you've got to be in the right place and you've got to use the exact right language and you'll just about break into, like, my dad's fortress of solitude heart. And then he'll tell you everything. But you've got to get it just right. <laughs> so um, I kind of um, take that forward when I'm in dialogue with people and... Also try to think of it as researching with them. Because I think one of the great privileges of being an artist is that you... A huge part of your job is to think. At the moment I'm aware of the fact that um, Greg Woehead is um, like trekking in like a big American park. And I'm kind of like, well that's like a really great hobby for an artist to have. To have like this time where you're walking and walking and walking because there's so much space for you to think things out and to be popping in and then withdrawing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part... Good artists create that space. And I'm interested in how can you collaborate with people and create that space for, like... you know, someone that is a hairdresser and maybe doesn't very often get the space to sit down and step back and analyse so much of what um, funders and producers and programmers and all sorts of people do for artists is create space to step back and think. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time thinking, like, how... I loved working at Lush. If I wasn't doing this, I'd still be doing that because I was really good at it and I loved it. And I think sometimes, like, if you gave those women, like, a week in a country house to just rest and think about what they were doing, they would come back and they would, like, make that shop the most profitable place in the world. Um, So I'm always trying to think about how do I extend the things that are in the artist's toolbox Mm -hmm. that we take for granted almost... Mm -hmm two collaborators and even in terms of going back as well to like a work like race card for example where actually what you're looking at is the enormity of the question and and similarly to the work in the hair in the hair salon where you know you're the question isn't a simple one it's Mm -hmm. a very challenging one and as you say there's it's about understanding what the space around that what's required around that Mm -hmm. because I'm sure all of the people you came into contact with had very um in-depth and elaborate responses to Mm -hmm. to the work but in a way it's about how you how you actually get to the point where that becomes freely available for people to talk about and share their opinions on and all of those things Mm. and also thinking about so Dark and Lovely and Race Cards are really 
interesting because they're like sister works, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and their strategies are really different. So with Dark and Lovely, it's like, right, I'm going to build this giant ball of hair and we'll fill it with like rum punch and we'll make it look a bit like my nan's house and it'll smell nice and someone's going to do my hair and we're all going to be gathered together. It's very, very intimate. And in that intimacy is how I can ask these hard questions Mm -hmm. because actually the questions are so in their way so violent and that violence is located in a rose tinted domestic setting okay so it has to it has to be like that whereas with race card it's like stark it's Mm -hmm. black and white it's cards um Fountain pen, hard wooden seat, hard wooden desk, quite like um, big rooms. Because it also felt important to me that... So in Dark and Lovely, you create a soft space so that you can analyse these questions without feeling attacked. In race cards, you create a space that asserts these questions and doesn't step back from them. Mm-hmm. and doesn't allow what often happens when you ask these questions which is that you watch people do like <laughs> sort of um debating linguistics to avoid them to avoid their complicity um but they're both seeking to do the same thing in a way um and i guess like a lot of my work is like bodies of work Mm-hmm. so there's chewing the fat there's the cake dress piece which I think you probably saw Yes, yeah. and that was at Spill um, there was another one where people could like um, pick bits they could like commit their food sins to my body and all sorts of weird stuff and all of those pieces were like a dialogue with each other and race cards and salt and dark and lovely were all talking with each other um so you're working in kind of processes of, you, you know, you've this trajectory of mm. your work in which there are a number of works that are following a thread of yeah. research or questions or... I think is that so. a fair way to... Yeah, yeah, I think I just keep making stuff until, like, <laughs> the anger subsides a bit. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um... Tell us about the work that you are here at the moment. So you're on a residency at the moment as part of the CAP programme. Yeah, so that thing happens, that always happens, I think, when you respond to an open call, which is like, I'm going to do this, and then you get there and you're like, oh, actually, no, I'm not. And also I was sick, so it was scuppered a bit. Um, And what I'm currently doing is writing ten walks. So it'll be like a little booklet. Um... And they kind of, I'm staying in an area called Portran, which is by the sea. Um, I'm quite small. Yeah, Portran's small. I always feel like I'm being like a really insulting city person when I say that, but it is small. No, it's a small neighbourhood, yeah. So when you walk, people like talk to you quite a lot. Um, And because I think I've seen two other black people in Portran since I've been there. So... um, your the presence of my body elicits questions so I find that if someone says hello and I say hello back 
they'll stop and they'll talk. So I'm kind of writing these interactions into the walks, I guess. So they're kind of like myths. They're kind of like instructions of how to walk along the beach. They're kind of like diary entries. They're a bit wibbly-wobbly. Um, but it was so interesting to be back by the sea again this year like like I spent such a long time at sea this year yeah Uh, we were talking earlier about Beyonce's formation yeah Uh, and a lot of that is about water and I think that there's been I've noticed a lot of work from black artists and creatives that there seems to be a returning to the sea and a returning to water because it's this space between worlds and the ocean is such a grave for black bodies, like, and in a way it's sort of where, like, blackness is born. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, this is really depressing. So there's a writer, um, Saidia Hartman, who's like an Afro-pessimist. She argues that enslaved people are picked up on the coast of Africa as African people. And by the time they get off the ships in the Americas or in the Caribbean, they are enslaved units of cargo. And there's this transformation that takes place in the ocean. And it's in the middle of the ocean that blackness is born and created. Um, And I was, was and still am, really um, obsessed with this theory. And also because... Um, the pressure, there was, I worked, spent a little bit of time um, in dialogue with, I can't remember a proper title now, like a forensic chemist. Okay. And she was saying that a body thrown underwater in the Atlantic, um, the pressure would like, um, have like crushed the bones within about a fortnight. So you wouldn't find the bones. Oh. You would just find salt. It would become like... Um, it would dissolve almost instantly. So that, like, water, like, in its very core is, like, full of black bodies, and that's what I always find myself thinking about when I'm at sea. It's really depressing. Sorry. It's not depressing at all. It's actually really interesting in terms of also, you know, contemporary society and a lot of the images that we're very aware of and the circumstances in terms of how the water has become this place of, as you describe, a space in between Mm. um, and holding so much hope for people in terms of transforming themselves from one place to another, travelling from one place to another and actually quite often that that hope isn't fulfilled and, and that's also a relevant tragedy of our modern time as well where, um, and I guess we still haven't come up with answers of how we should cope with that and how yeah. we should make that work out a bit better yeah yeah sort of yeah it's a really um really deathly space mm-hmm. to see um so yeah i think i'm probably writing about death quite a lot so I've gone a bit weird because I'm still making it. So yeah. it's still really like um, like fuzzy and cluttered in my head at the moment, which is fine. 
um, I would expect it to be. And has the proximity of being close to the water been a positive relationship? Yeah, it yeah. has. Um, having said that the sea makes me think of birth, which it does, I really love being by the sea, and I love how, like, like to the taxi will, like, drop you at the top of Linda's, and you've got to walk down to your caravan, and it's proper darkness so you get proper stars um and you can sort of hear the wind in this you can like feel it moving through their mobile home it's like a really quiet like peaceful place um you sleep really deep and i really appreciate all of that and it's it's such a wild beach do you know yeah. what i mean like when the tides go out Everything is like seaweed, like covers everything like it's hair. Um, birds strutting around like they own the place. It's <laughs> like unspoiled, untouched. Not a beach for like swimming and sunbathing. Like mm-hmm. it's a bit of land that like the ocean shares with you sometimes when it feels like it. Yeah. <laughs> but then claims it back every night like this is mine. Um so Linder's Mobile Home Park is the place where you're staying yeah. and it's in collaboration with Fingal County Council yeah. and Create Ireland and the CAP Residency. So they're the kind of partners that have come around it. But this is a residency that for the first time this year has been open to international artists, but previously would be open to Irish-based artists. Um, so the 10, the 10 scripts or mm-hmm. the 10 texts are they a kind of guide for future I think visitors, so. for future resident artists? Yeah, I hope so. I'd like... So what I'd like them to do is be, like, in, like, a little box with, like, I don't know, like... some other stuff so that you could figure that out. Yeah. So you could open it and it's, like, there as a welcome for you and really thinks about like those those big walks that you can do around the peninsula yeah. where you have that really exciting how far can I walk so if I just follow this coast around where will I get to um, yeah I hope it's there for other artists that come and in terms of um, you know you said earlier on you answered the open call for the cap presidency um, and later this year um there's potential for you to present your work in Ireland, mm-hmm. um, both finished works and new works that you're evolving. So does Ireland offer a kind of context that you're interested in, or is it the same as presenting in any other place outside of Britain? No. no, I think it's um, really unique, actually. Um, I didn't realise how like comparatively small the um, population of Ireland is mm-hmm. for a start. I was really surprised by that. It has a really unique history, a really specific context, especially in terms of gender, mm-hmm. a really specific relationship with colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. Like, I know there's, like, an art context and all of that stuff, and that matters and is important, but I think the thing that I'm always interested in is, like, 
what is the relationship between the lived experiences of the people seeing this work mm. and what this work is saying. And I think that what's super interesting about Irish UK is that like there are these broad similarities and then massive seismic differences. Mm-hmm. So I think it for me feels like a really exciting, unpredictable context to show work in. So something like race cards say were to come here. For me there's a really interesting question of how it would be responded to and how it would be interacted with. Um Which again, which I think is unique, unique within Europe, mm-hmm. unique within the world. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because I think also um, as a as a festival program, I feel like Irish audiences are um, are ready for your work in a way that I think the invitations and provocations set through your work would only be a really brilliant emboldening of uh, of questions and provocations that currently sit within our society and within exactly the things that you've identified that mark a kind of Irish apart in a way, mm-hmm. or Ireland that is apart from the rest of Europe and so on, but also very much as the same, but different. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something really interesting there to be explored, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so I have to go back to the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would you, or would you, um, contextualise your work, um, both in terms of uh, the historics and also in terms of the current live art performance practice in Britain or internationally? I don't know. Um, where do I place my work? definitely like hmm hmm so my work goes out a lot in theatres and in a theatre programme it's the weird stuff (laughs) but I'm alright with that because like I don't I don't care what you call it as long as you put it on and you let me do what I need to do to get the audience I want and also like I'm Sometimes a theatre is a more accessible... Accessible. We've talked about the problems with that word. But it's a more... um, It's a space with a more clear invitation than other spaces. Sure. Um, So when we did Dark and Lovely, it was was on at, like, the Rep Theatre in Birmingham, which is, like, the biggest theatre in the city. So that means that when I go on a, like, community radio station like One Style and say it's there, it's a really clear invitation for, like the audience of that radio station to come mm-hmm. whereas if it's like in some of the places where Fierce is for example where it's like a warehouse or a down. tire factory yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah like my mum's not gonna go <laughs> she doesn't care she's not gonna go because she doesn't understand the implication it's a bit no yeah um so often the work goes on in theatres I'm down with that but also like I stay in close touch with Lada um, and, like, go to things like IBT and Fierce and Spill and have shown my work in Fierce and Spill. Hope to show it in IBT one day. Um, 
so I guess it's so I guess in terms of where it is now, it's like somewhere between experimental theatre and live art. Mm. I try not to think about it too much because I think mm. that it can be a bit can make you go a bit loopy. Um can I ask you a question about yeah. um, where, for example, earlier on when you spoke about your work being in two parts, mm. you talked a little bit about, you know, within a live art context of being, you know, kind of white middle class mm. um, audience, which are readily available through the context of live art, because mm. obviously there's a, a real convergence between visual arts, performance, blah, 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 and so therefore... There is a very particular, as you've mentioned, particularly within a UK context, there's a, a live art family, let's say, for example, mm. and that family is made up of academic institutions, arts agencies, festivals, programmes of events, venues and so on. Um, but also the, the kind of origins and the, the founding mm. premise of live art being really about outsider art and about mm. a, an art form that allows risk and allows for those a space or carves a space for those challenging questions that perhaps otherwise were not being asked to consider. Mm. And do you feel that the art form offers that platform for, for deciding how we come around the, the questions or the the provocations that you're setting through your work, or actually, is it more of an infringement to have it within that context? That's a good question. It depends. Okay. It really depends. And I think that... Oh, I've got to put my words carefully here. What, what do I want to say? So, performance art, live art, definitely outsider art, but, like, an outsider art that now has institutions, and from the moment that you have institutions, you too have the capacity to exclude, whether you intend to or not. Um... And it also can sometimes create a sort of hierarchy of live art. Yeah. You know, where usually sort of body-based work is at the top. <laughs> <laughs> and everything else is kind of uh, <laughs> a bit soft and fluffy. Yeah. And because there is... There's some... also the radical wing, though. Yeah, there's the radical extension wing, conservatory, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, and so there are times when... Because I... It's weird, but when I'm making work, my mum, my dad, my little sister, and me when I was 16, are always in my head. Because my dad, like... So what's her name, that mermaid woman? And Liv Young. Okay. So when she was at Fierce, my dad came with me to see that. <sighs> Which... 
he's a good man, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And he was just sat there like, why is she doing this? Every night, he'd just really quietly go, why is she doing this? Why is she doing this? And there was a bit when she was coming towards us, and I was like, please go away, please go away, please go away. And I think she must have seen in my eyes that I was like, please don't go after my dad, please don't go after my dad. Because she passed us over, and I was like, oh my God, thank God. But, even though it was weird, every now and again, he'll really quietly go, do you remember when we saw that fish woman? And I'll be like, yeah. yeah. And he'll be like, wow. And he'll get on with what he's doing. But I think that there was like a part of him that was like, talks about it similar to the way that he talks about when he went to see Prince. Okay. So he went to see Prince and every now and again he's like, I mean, it was... It was something. And so... I'm always a bit like, those four people yeah. are my primary auditions <laughs> in my head. They're who I'm always making work for. And I'm kind of a bit like, would you feel comfortable here? And if the answer's no, then I'm never 100% sure that my work should be there. Okay. And sometimes, when I'm in those environments, I think, no they wouldn't feel comfortable here. Mm -hmm. So, for example, like, uh, the cake dress work that I did at Spill, the only other time I did it was in a shopping centre on a Saturday in Leeds. Um, And it was, like, raucous. And for me, it was like, this is what I want. There's nothing wrong with that context. It's important, and I get why it's there. And I'm not dismissive of it because I also think it's a great context to have writing about your work made it's a good context to experiment wildly Uh, it's a good context to fail Mm -hmm. but already for me that means it's a work in progress space for me it's not the final form of where I want my practice to be it's just because I'm not interested in my work being in an ivory tower even if the ivory tower is quite grungy and run in the porch like I want it to be if I couldn't have found it when I was a teenager yeah so it's kind of like it's a there's a dexterity there as well isn't there because not everybody can make work across varying context so yeah but as far as I'm aware like obviously you've presented work like on public bus service that brings you to your local job center you've presented work in shopping centers as you said um where else have you presented your work toilets pubs bars cafes but that for me like that's a really important thing that I forget all the time When I was starting out, the reason why I said that I was a live artist, not a theatre maker, was because to me, saying I was a live artist meant I could do anything. Mm -hmm. That, That was what I wanted. And I think that came from like... Uh, what my mum used to call drama club, but was the university theatre society, (laughs) where like what you could do is like actually quite rigorously controlled. We had like nine slots in the university theatre space. 
Um, you know, you could play around with the seats if you wanted, but yes. it was always a play. It was never devised. Um, I was the only black person, which limited my roles because no one ever did colorblind casting, and I couldn't be a sister or a mother or an aunt. And so many English plays are about families, kitchen sink drama. Um, you know, the wildest anybody ever got was physical theater. But, you know, we didn't have the resources to train people to be able to do something really exciting with mm-hmm. that. So I, like, made a theatre festival so that weird stuff could happen all over the city. And for me, it's always been about... And I had a chat about this with um, Jamila and Alex from Project O. Like, I feel like an artist should be a thing that's always growing. Like, every context should always feel too small, too limited, I want to do more, I want to stretch out of this and grow out of this. Um, and also to, like I, I went to a grammar school in Birmingham. Um, so I was, so it was like, home was like a counsellor's day and then you go to school and it was like called King Edwards and we had a school anthem and we wore a kilt. So it was like very code switchy. Mm-hmm. And I've always been code switchy. I've always been moving between spaces and thinking about what do I take from middle class school? What do I take from working class home? Like I'm of both of those spaces always. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes sense that my practice is one that's kind of like fluid and it's kind of like, okay, this is where it needs to be and this is like a festival like spill gives me a space to make something that could be anything. Mm-hmm. But a space like a shopping centre <laughs> means I have to think a bit more about what is communicating and why and Yeah. Perfect. And tell us a little bit about, so you've a, you've a new project on the horizon mm. and we spoke a little bit earlier in the week about, you know, you're kind of building partners around that project, but obviously the partners that you're building are not just programming partners, they're, they're partners who will bring you to the root of the communities you want to work with. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so my next project is called the Missy Elliott Project. I'm going to be working with teenage girls in the UK and teenage girls in the state, in the States, black teenage girls, um, looking at what it is to be a black teenage girl right here, right now, uh, and using Missy Elliott as our artistic starting point because she's great and she's weird. And I think that, like... That's really important, <laughs> that's really important. And I wanna play with those women, young women. I wanna work with them as fellow live artists. So to say to them, we have a room in Transform Festival. We've got this room for 24 hours. Mm. Here's a Missy Elliott album. That's all we got, what are we doing from there? Um, and eventually the plan is to work with those girls to make a sort of musical and I think that the musical is going to be like so we talked again before we started recording about that article about how Beyonce uses social media I've got such trash references as a person I'm so sorry um and 
what that article references a little bit is how, on the one hand, social media can be this space of overshare, but on the other hand, it can be this space where you create yourself. Then you destroy that version of yourself that you've created and you create another self and you build worlds and a whole other language out of memes and images and emojis. It's this very, like, reflexive, break it down, build it back up, turn it around on itself. A bit like in the Lego movie, when you've got the master builders who are just like, now there's a car, now there's this. Um, and I'm interested in so much work that we see about teenage girls is kind of like that woman out of the Simpsons being like, won't someone please think of the children? And I'm like, on the one hand, yeah. But on the other hand, teenage girls are like powerful mavericks who navigate this world that seeks to control them and then come out of the other side. So I'm interested in looking at something like that. don't know how that's going to manifest. That's why I'm giving myself a long time to make it. So at the moment, what we're looking for is... So we've got our partners, who are our theatres, but also in every city, we've got a small pot of money for someone who we're loosely calling an engagement and education officer. And what we're looking for is somebody who, like, maybe was involved in, like, a youth theatre scheme and came out of the other end, enjoyed it so much that they now are, like, working with other young women. So Leeds, for example, has this great thing called the Leeds Young Poets sort of organisation and every kid in Chapel Town does something there and it's really positive and they love it and feel complete ownership of it. And a lot of the young men and women that come out of that go on to work for the Black Health Initiative or they go into social work. It just seems to really ground people in the community. So mm -hmm. we want to work with someone like that yeah. who's going to work with us on putting together the workshops for the women, not the women, the girls, thinking about where the best place is to place them in the city, how they can be fun and exciting. But also we want to try and connect them with, like... So there's a young woman called June Eric Udori who does teen activism, which I didn't even know was a thing. But she goes to, like, loads. She organises, like, summer schools for teenage girls, um, looking at how, like, young black teenage girls can have sort of networks of contacts for when they graduate... Um, thinking about how girls in sort of private schools and boarding schools who are maybe the only black person in their year can connect to other girls of colour. Um, so having people working with her or working with an activist like Bridget Minimore, who is a poet but also does lots and lots of workshops about sexual abuse and things like that. So trying to... Yeah, we want to make this thing and we want it to be fun, but also I'm trying to think about... I read my first Bell Hooks book two years ago. And when I read it, I remember thinking, God damn it, I wish someone gave me this when I was 16. <laughs> I wish someone had given me this text when I was a teenager. And so trying to put something together for them where, like, even if after we've made this thing for Transform, they then exit the project or whatever, that there's something useful in it something interesting yeah. in it and not in a way where it's like this is us telling you stuff but in a way that's like the thing that should exist within 
feminism, anti-racism politics, all of that, is the ability to argue with it, is the ability to go, I know Audre Lorde said that in 1984, but it's 2016, and I think she was wrong, Um, and trying to work with people in that way, and it sort of doubles up as well, because I don't want to speak for teenage girls on behalf of teenage girls. I've used this word probably in this like interview, but I hate words like empowering because I'm like, where are you getting this power from? Yeah. <laughs> How come you get to give it away? Like, empowering who? Empowering what? Shut up. Um, <laughs> but I want to make sure that I have like worked with young women and seen like how they work and how they make so that what we make at the end a we've made in genuine actual collaboration and I need time to learn how to collaborate with them Mm -hmm. but b also so that what's made feels like something that came out of a teenage girl's head and that sort of really loopy like gorgeous way of thinking that teenagers have um which you sort of lose and for a while you're embarrassed by and then you fall back in love with it. So, yeah, it's, it's in a really, like, exciting, weird, scary place. But I like that it's a project that feels really, like, quenchy is the word I'm going to go for. I don't know if that's okay. a real word. But, like, you know when you open an orange and it's all, like, zest and juice <laughs> and bright orange? That's how that project feels in my head which after salt, which was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really nice thing. That was something that was bursting with potential. Yeah, yeah something yeah. that's just a bit more. And also it's this thing of, I think about this a lot, and I think we were sort of touching on this earlier. You can't just critique the way things are. Mm-hmm. You also have to imagine what they could be. Like, um, <laughs> there's this uh, vegan, Afco, and I'm not a vegan, but when I w- watch her videos, I wish I was. And she always says how, um, if we don't have a blueprint for what happens after the revolution, then the next day when we're most vulnerable, everything will fall apart because we won't have thought about it. So I guess, like, in its way, the Missy Elliott project, the Missy Elliott musical, is me thinking of a blueprint like making something that is just free um, and joyous I hope <laughs> well that's a beautiful way to end our interview because I have to say I wish you all the best of luck in developing that blueprint starting the revolution and waking up the next day to enact that blueprint <laughs> go team go um, Selena Thompson thank you so much for talking to us at Create today it's been an absolute pleasure to hang out with you for the afternoon and have all sorts of wonderful conversations and I look forward to welcoming you back to Dublin and to Ireland very very soon I hope yeah me too <laughs> thank you thank you